This is the California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 7. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the seventh episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. Our primary practice areas are defamation and free speech, which of course brings in anti-slap motions and motions for attorney fees. If I can help you in any of these ways, please feel free to give me a call at 714-954-0700. Again, that's 714-954-0700. Or you can contact me through the CaliforniaSlapLaw.com, CaliforniaSlapLaw.com, the website. Today we're going to discuss a case involving a former client of mine, Donald Trump. Now don't be impressed, at the end of today's podcast, I'll give you the details of how I ended up representing the Donald for all of about 15 minutes. That is, that's not how long it's going to take me to tell you about it. That's about how long I represented him. So I'll tell you about that at the end of the podcast. But I didn't bring up this case just so I could name drop. It is actually a very interesting anti-slap case that contains a detailed discussion of what constitutes malice in the defamation context. Now, the name of the case is McKayef versus Trump University, LLC. McKayef versus Trump University, LLC. This is not an appellate decision. We're still on the trial court level, although it did take a run through the Ninth Circuit during the uh, during the process. The case was decided on June 17, 2014, uh, by United States District Judge Gonzalo Curiel. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Gonzalo Curiel out of the Southern District of California. Here are the facts of the case. Way back in 2008, late 2008, Tarla McKayef paid some $60,000 to take seven real estate investing and finance courses at Trump University. She ended up suing Trump and Trump University, claiming she didn't get what she paid for. And here's what she complained about. She said that the programs were shorter than advertised. Uh, She was told that she would get one year of mentoring, but instead of a a real-life person, she was just given a toll-free number to call. And when she would call, according to McKayef, the people that would answer uh, really wouldn't know the answers to her questions. And she also complained about trying to buy real estate. The people at Trump University told her that she needed to go out and increase her credit limit on her credit card, and she could start buying properties using the credit on her credit card. And when she did what they asked, instead of uh, showing her how to use that credit to invest in real estate, she was pressured to use the credit to buy the Trump Gold Elite seminar for another $35,000. There was also a big fight about uh, some signs they told her to put up. She claims that the signs they told her to put up to sell real estate were actually illegal. It was right here in Orange County. They claimed that they told her to check to see if they were legal before she put them up. So she requested a full refund, but Trump said that she'd received all the super secret real estate investing information that Trump could offer and that she was not entitled to a refund. So the fund began in late 2009 when McKayef sent a four-page letter to Bank of America challenging the credit card charges. In the letter that she wrote to Bank of America, she charged Trump University with three things, basically. She said they engaged in grand larceny, that Trump University engaged in identity theft, and that they had opened an unauthorized credit card in her name without her permission. The case refers to these as the specific crime statements. So McKayev filed a class action against Trump University and Donald Trump 
and they turned around and filed a counterclaim. Trump, in his counterclaim, actually I should say Trump University in its counterclaim, alleged defamation based on the statements that McKayef had made to Bank of America and others, and the complaint specifically sought damages of $1 million. Now let's stop right there for a moment and let's stop and smell the slap. We'll decide in a moment if the counterclaim was was in fact a slap, but it already smells like one. When you think about it, you have a disgruntled student who wants her money back and writes to her bank asking for a chargeback on those charges. Really, Trump? She wrote to her bank, and you're going to claim a million dollars in damages? How exactly are you going to prove that level of damages for a letter that she wrote to Bank of America asking for her money back? Did Bank of America, for example, stop doing business with you? Where, where are the damages? It seems pretty clear here that the purpose of the counterclaim was to try and silence a critic, and I'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast. So McKayev's lawyers felt the same way I did, so they filed an anti-slap motion on June 30, 2010. McKayev, in her anti-slap motion, argued that Trump University is a public figure, and in order to prevail on its defamation counterclaim, it had to prove McKayev acted with actual malice when she made the specific crime statements. Now, here's where the procedures get a little bit complicated. The district court denied the anti-slap motion. The court found that Trump University is not a public figure, so it did not need to show that McKayef acted with malice when she made the specific crime statements. McKayef appealed that denial of her anti-slap motion to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit agreed with the trial court that the speech fell under the anti-slap statute, but reversed and remanded on the issue of malice. The Ninth Circuit found that McKayoff's statements were not protected by the litigation privilege, but it did find that Trump University was a limited-purpose public figure and therefore must show by clear and convincing evidence that McKayoff made her statements with actual malice. The Ninth Circuit remanded with instructions that the trial court determine whether Trump University could meet that standard of proving actual malice. So, pursuant to the Ninth Circuit, the district court judge looked at whether Trump could show that McKayev had acted with malice. Now, remember, both courts concluded that Trump's counterclaim arose out of McKayev's protected rights. The first prong of the anti-slap analysis was met. That's not even an issue in our analysis today. The entire issue comes down to that second prong, whether Trump could prove the defamation claim. All the trial court would be examining was whether Trump could meet the burden of showing a prima facie case on the defamation claim in light of the ruling that Trump University was, in fact, a limited public figure. So let's take it back for a second. Trump University was suing for defamation and and must therefore demonstrate that McKayoff, one, published a statement of fact that, two, is false, three, is defamatory, four, is unprivileged, and five, has a natural tendency to injure or cause special damage. Now, they'd met that burden the first time around when the court said, you're not a public figure, so you don't have to show malice. So this time around, Trump University also has to show, by clear and convincing evidence, that McKayoff made her statements with actual malice. If Trump can't meet all of those elements, then it can't establish its case, and the anti-slap motion must be granted. Now, here's the standard for actual malice, which goes all the way back to the 1974 Supreme Court decision of Gertz versus Robert Welsh, Inc., To prove actual malice, a defamation plaintiff must show by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant knew her statements were false at the time she made them or that she acted with reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of the statements made. So, when met with the requirement of actual malice, a defamation plaintiff not only has an additional burden of proof, it has an additional quantum of proof. It must go beyond the preponderance of the evidence standard and instead prove malice by clear and convincing evidence. 
Now, the Supreme Court admits this is a subjective standard. In California, the clear and convincing evidence standard requires that the evidence be such as to command the unhesitating assent of every reasonable mind. Wow, that's not too nebulous, is it? Let me read that to you again. In California, the clear and convincing standard requires that the evidence be such as to command the unhesitating assent of every reasonable mind. However, a defamation plaintiff may rely on inferences drawn from circumstantial evidence to show actual malice. All the cases I'm quoting will be in the show notes along with the entire ruling of the court, just so you know. Now, another Supreme Court decision held that reckless conduct is not measured by whether a reasonably prudent man would have published or would have investigated before publishing. There must be sufficient evidence to permit the conclusion that the defendant in fact entertained serious doubts as to the truth of her publication. And here's the one that always blows the minds of my clients when I explain this standard. The client comes to me and wants to sue for defamation. I explain that we're going to have to show malice. And the client says, no problem. I have an email where she says she would do anything to hurt me. Well, from a common sense standpoint, that is, of course, evidence of malice. But here's what the Supreme Court says about that. Actual malice has nothing to do with bad motive or ill will and may not be inferred alone from evidence of personal spite, ill will, or intention to injure on the part of the writer. So even though you have an email that basically says, I'm going to do everything in my power to hurt you, that's not enough to show malice in the way that we're talking about it. However, in appropriate cases, factors such as a failure to investigate, anger and hostility toward the plaintiff, Reliance upon sources known to be unreliable or known to be biased against the plaintiff may indicate that the publisher herself had serious doubts regarding the truth of her publication. So as you see, it's turning into a totality of the circumstances type analysis. So as I said, even if you have an email from the defendant saying she's defaming the plaintiff out of malice as part of a plan to destroy the plaintiff, that would not be enough to prove malice. But if you have if you have that evidence plus evidence to show that she could not have believed what she was saying, well, then those two things might be enough to meet the standard. When it comes right down to it, the reason that people struggle with the actual malice standard is because it's misnamed. It really has little to do with finding malice and is more of a finding of willful negligence. The courts require that you get into the head of the defendant and show that she did not believe what she was saying, or at the very least, that she had serious doubts about the truth of her publication. When you're met with the requirements of showing malice, worry less about showing the motives of the defendant and more about the information possessed by the defendant. I've successfully shown malice in a number of cases simply by showing that the defendant had no evidence to support what he was saying. Let's say the defendant said that uh, the plaintiff embezzled from his former partners. Well, who told you that he embezzled from his former partners? I don't know. It was just something I heard. How much did he embezzle from his former partners? I don't know. Have you ever spoken to his former partners? No. Well, how did he embezzle from his former partners? Well, I don't know all the details. If you line up enough of those sorts of answers showing that the person simply had no basis for the story they were telling, no basis in fact for the story they were telling, then that can overcome the burden and you can show malice in that manner. In a perfect world, I won't take a case that I know is going to be met with an anti-slap motion, or at least has a high probability of being met with an anti-slap motion, unless I already have sufficient evidence in place to meet that standard. Because as you know, when they file an anti-slap motion, it, it stays discovery. 
The law is pretty clear, though, that if you have to show malice, the court should grant leave to permit you to conduct discovery on that limited issue. So you will get to ask the sort of questions I was just discussing. Indeed, it's, it's been my experience that the courts actually go too far in allowing discovery on malice. Uh, I had a case where my client was sued by a city council member for something she said at a council meeting. That's an absolute privilege. Malice is irrelevant to determining whether that falls under the anti-slap statute or whether she can prove her case, um, yet the court granted leave to conduct discovery on the issue of malice. We ultimately won, but we had to go through all that discovery for no apparent reason. Okay, back to the Trump University case. In its counterclaim for defamation, Trump University had alleged that McKayef published at least 20 defamatory statements to various third parties in various forms. Now, I'm reading between the lines here, but I'm guessing that the attorneys representing Trump University made the very common mistake of alleging that she had talked to all kinds of third parties without any actual evidence that she had. And my reading between the lines is supported uh, by the fact of what they ended up going with. She had reported to the State Education Department, the Department of Consumer Affairs, and the Attorney General's Office, and others, that Trump University had ripped her off. But all of those statements, of course, are absolutely privileged. But a lot of attorneys will look at that sort of circumstance, that sort of evidence, and say, well, I can't get around the privilege as to the reports she made to these government agencies. But if she was talking to all of those agencies, I'm just betting that she was probably talking to others. So I'll go ahead and file the complaint, and I'll flesh that out in discussion. I'll figure out who she was talking to. So they allege in the complaint that she was talking to other third parties that are unidentified. So in this case, Trump's attorney said, forget about all those other allegations of unprivileged speech. We're only going to focus on that one letter she wrote to Bank of America. Now, why would Trump's attorneys cave if they had evidence to support she'd spoken to other unprivileged or she'd had unprivileged conversations with other third parties? They wouldn't have. So I, I think they fell into that trap. They alleged that she'd spoken to all these people and they really didn't have any evidence of that. So when push came to shove, when it came back from the Ninth Circuit, they said, you know what, we're going to limit it to just that letter to Bank of America. So that's so strong that we can overcome uh, this anti-slap motion with, with just that letter to, to Bank of America. Now, again, McKayev's letter to Bank of America stated that Trump University committed grand larceny, identity theft, and unsolicited taking of personal credit and trickery into opening credit cards without approval. That's the word she used. And those are all referred to as the specific crimes. So here are the four arguments Trump University made in favor of a finding of actual malice. I think it's important to go through these because it really lays out the, the malice standard for future cases. Argument number one they made was that McKayoff's testimony showed that McKayoff knew the specific crime accusations were false when she made them. So number one is she knew they were false. Number two, McKayoff's actions were inconsistent with the actions of someone who genuinely believed the specific crimes had been committed. Number three, an inference of actual malice arises from McKayoff's anger and hostility towards Trump University. And four, McKayoff's failure to investigate her specific crimes accusations demonstrated actual malice. We thus begin with McKayoff's alleged knowledge of the falsity. Trump University said it could demonstrate McKayoff acted with actual malice because McKayoff's statements were fabricated, and she could, she knowingly and selectively published these false statements only to her credit card company, in other words, Bank of America, in order to seek a refund. Now, this is this is a beautiful example of attorneys thinking too much like attorneys. Here's how it played out. When McKayoff wrote to Bank of America, she said that Trump University had opened a credit card in her name without her approval. 
So later on, Trump University takes McKayoff's deposition, and at her deposition, McKayoff testifies that there are a dozen entities involved in the whole Trump University scam, as she put it, and she views them as all, all as the same thing. She testified that when she wrote to Bank of America and talked about Trump University opening the credit card, she was really referring collectively to all of these entities involved in the process. So the attorneys at the deposition asked, but did Trump University ever open a credit card in your name? And she answered something like, well, I viewed them all as the same entity. Yes, but did Trump University ever open a credit card in your name? Well, as I said, I I viewed them all as the same entity. But at the time you wrote to Bank of America, did you have any specific knowledge that Trump University, that particular entity, ever opened a credit card in your name? And she finally answered no. Now, I made up this specific exchange. I'm not reading from the deposition transcript, but if you read the decision, you'll see that's a pretty good supposition of how it went. So Trump's attorneys, after getting her to answer no, said, aha, we got her to admit that she did not have any basis to believe that Trump University got the credit card. That was the basis for their argument that the letter she wrote to Bank of America was written with knowledge of the falsity of the statement she was making. Now, in making this argument, Trump relied on a case called Nguyen Lam versus CAO. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. In that case, the court held that malice could be inferred where, for example, a story is fabricated by the defendant, is the product of his imagination, or is based wholly on an unverified anonymous telephone call. In that case, the defendant had claimed that plaintiff was a communist, but the evidence revealed she had absolutely no basis for that conclusion. So Trump University said the same rule applies here. McKayoff admitted that she had no basis to claim that Trump University got the credit card, so therefore she acted with malice. Well, the court rejected that analogy and rejected the reliance on that case. As with most legal matters, context is everything, and that is the point attorneys sometimes miss when they have an aha moment. Yes, she did say that she had no information that Trump University had opened up the credit card account, but at the time of her deposition, McKayoff understood that there was a distinction between all the various entities she had once viewed as one entity. She had provided some pretty good reasons why she viewed them all as the same, including the fact that some of the entities all use the same logo. The fact that McKayoff subsequently recanted, as it were, has nothing to do with whether she was acting with malice at the time of her letter. She just came into better knowledge, better information, so she changed uh, her understanding, but that doesn't mean that way back when she was acting with malice. So argument number one goes down. Next, Trump University tried to argue that the actions of McKayoff didn't support her claims. For example, Trump University argued that McCaff was aware of the credit card back in 2008, and in fact, she had authorized charging that card for more courses. If she really thought Trump University had obtained the card by fraud, she would have reported Trump University way back then, was the argument that they made. But the court didn't buy that either. It has to do, it's sort of the straw that broke the camel's back sort of a situation. McKayoff explained that she did not publish the specific crime statements until October 2009 because her negative experiences with Trump University culminated on June 18, 2009, when she received a letter from the Orange County District Attorney's Office regarding the illegal posting of bandit signs. Think about it, and it makes some sense. She wasn't happy with Trump University. She didn't feel like she was getting her money's worth. She was finally going to try to sell some houses using the technique they suggested, which was putting these bandit signs out. I'm not sure what that means, but I think it's those signs you put out that say, I'll buy your house. And so she puts out these signs, and she's met with a letter from the District Attorney's Office saying, 
don't be putting out these signs or we'll arrest you or, or, or fine you for doing so. So it was the straw that broke the camel's back in the sense that, my God, I've gone through this whole course. I'm finally ready to do something. And even something as simple as putting up these signs turned out to be an issue. So that's when she really became aware or at least formed the opinion that she had not gotten good quality education from Trump University. The way McKayef put it is was the, the letter from the district attorney's office pulled back the curtain and allowed her to begin to realize that she'd been had by Trump University. McKayev then made the decision to expose Trump University's scam and recover her money, as she put it. Now, I found the next statement by the court very interesting because I have this precise circumstance in one of my current cases. In my case, my client realized he'd been cheated by someone on a business deal, but he was still hoping to get his money back, so he didn't immediately start uh, flaming the guy. He said, he, in fact, he wrote him an email and he said, you're, you're a really good guy. I've enjoyed our time together. You're, um, you're a great mentor. You're a great business partner, but things really haven't worked out. So why don't you cut me a check for all the money uh, I gave you? He then, when, when when the business partner refused to return his money, he then issued a press release talking about the problems with the company. So now the opposing counsel keeps waving that email and saying, well, he clearly didn't believe what he was saying in that press release because he wrote this glowing review about this guy prior to the time he wrote the press release. So the same analysis applies in the Trump case. And here's the way the court put it. Quote, the gist of McCaff's complaint about Trump University is that it constitutes an elaborate scam. As the recent Ponzi scheme scandals involving one-time financial luminaries like Bernard Madoff and Alan Stanford demonstrate, victims of con artists often sing the praises of their victimizers until the moment they realize they've been fleeced. McCaff's initial enthusiasm for Trump University's program is not probative of whether she acted with actual malice. So that argument didn't win for Trump University. Trump University next argued that it had evidence of McKayoff's hostility and motive. Now, this one was really thin. Here is the quote from her deposition testimony that Trump University claim, claimed showed she acted with malice. I'm a writer. I write certain ways, and this is how I write. And I felt like if I included anything to do with the law, which I felt these laws were broken, the bank would understand that this is an important issue and would need to look into this matter. Trump pointed to that and said, see, she's acknowledging that she was writing in a certain way, trying to get Bank of America's attention. But the court looked at it and took it exactly the opposite. It said she was not acting with malice because her letter specifically states she felt these laws were broken. She did not testify that she made up the criminal allegations. She felt criminal laws were broken. And that's what she put in the letter. So that argument didn't didn't fly. And finally, Trump University argued that she acted with malice because she failed to investigate her claims before she made them. This one's pretty funny, actually. Trump University was really grasping at straws at this point. I mean, superficially, the argument makes some sense. Here's what, here's what Trump University said. McKayev said that she made the criminal allegations to Bank of America because she thought Trump University had committed these crimes. Okay, but that's a circular argument. What did you do to reach the conclusion that Trump University had committed crimes? Well, as it turned out, McKayoff had actually done a lot. McKayoff testified that she spent time doing online research and investigating all of her statements before making them. She spoke with other students and reviewed complaints posted online. And she talked to loved ones, friends, and attorneys before she posted these comments, or excuse me, before she wrote the letter to Bank of America. Well, okay, said Trump's attorneys, but she did not. And this is the actual quote from their brief. Trump's attorneys said, McKayoff did not ask her lawyer if her allegations of specific crimes were accurate, and she did not research the meaning of the legal terms she was using. 
Trump University argued that by failing to consult her lawyer before accusing Trump University of the specific crimes, Mikheyev made a conscious decision to avoid the truth. Here is the argument Trump's attorneys were trying to make. In the 1989 Supreme Court case of Hart-Hanks Communications, the Supremes held that turning a blind eye to the contradictory evidence available to you can demonstrate malice. In Hart-Hanks, a newspaper had the statement of a third-party witness to support the story it was publishing, but it chose not to interview a witness to the event. It refused to listen to a tape recording provided by the person in question. It also ignored the fact that the person denied the charges and that five other witnesses said the person had not committed the alleged acts. In other words, the, the newspaper had one source that supported the story and a bunch of sources that denied it. The court held that where the newspaper turned a blind eye to all that contradictory evidence, that was reckless. But Hart Hanks was clearly distinguishable from the circumstances of Mikheyev. She did not rely on a third party. She was talking about her own firsthand experience with Trump University. And the law does not impose a duty on someone to investigate a claim in the manner proposed by Trump University. You just don't have to go into that level of detail if you've lived it. Mikheyev was not required to go to her attorney and say, they opened a credit card in my name without my permission, but I want to confirm that I'm alleging the proper crimes for that offense. There's just no such burden. So for all of these reasons, the trial court concluded that Trump University had not met its burden of proving actual malice and therefore could not prevail on its defamation claim. After four years, the anti-slap motion was finally granted as to the counterclaim by Trump University. There was a brief discussion that was kind of interesting about the attorney fees in the ruling. And again, I'm really reading between the lines here, but it appears that Trump University might have thrown in an argument that it should not have to pay attorney's fees. I'd be willing to bet that they said to the judge, come on, judge, you agreed with us the first time around. The Ninth Circuit found that we, we were a limited public figure, but still had to leave it to you to decide if we could meet our burden. This was a really close one, so why don't you give us a pass on the attorney fees? Now, I extrapolate all of that because the court gives an explanation as to why it must award attorney's fees and specifies that it's going to include the attorney fees on appeal. Well, that's all self-evident, and I don't see why the court would make that statement unless it was responding to something. I will make a note to Judge Curiel, however. The judge completely misstated the rule regarding the award of attorney's fees. Here's what he said in the ruling. Quote, California's anti-slap statute allows a prevailing defamation defendant to recover attorney's fees and costs unless the anti-slap motion is frivolous or intended to cause unnecessary delay. That's not what the statute says. That doesn't even make sense. If the defamation defendant prevails on an anti-slap motion, she gets attorney fees. End of discussion. Long pause for effect. However, if the defamation defendant brings a frivolous anti-slap motion, then the plaintiff can seek attorney fees. The way the judge quoted the rule, a defamation defendant could prevail on an anti-slap motion, but the court could deny them fees on the ground that the motion was frivolous. That doesn't even make any sense. How can you prevail on the motion and yet be bringing a frivolous motion? So having imprudently criticized a federal judge I will likely appear in front of, I'll call it a day. For all your anti-slap needs, be sure to call me at 714-954-0700, or you can email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. And if you're looking for ways to market your law firm, be sure to visit yourownlawfirm.com and sign up for my free law firm marketing newsletter. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone.
So many years ago, back when I was still a solo, a client came in and hired me to represent him in a breach of contract matter. Basically, Donald Trump had licensed the use of his name for a project my client was promoting, and someone was suing my client on that project. It was a really stupid lawsuit, not involving much money at all, uh, but it was brought against my client and Donald Trump. It was pretty clear that the lawsuit uh, was not really for money. Uh, It was probably more for notoriety. Uh, Maybe she wanted to get onto The Apprentice or something. So anyway, I looked at the contract and I could see that there was an indemnity provision requiring my client to defend Donald Trump against any claims. So I contacted Trump's attorneys and they advised me they would look into it, but that I should represent Trump until advised otherwise. So I confirmed my representation in writing. And as I recall, I went to a case management conference where I got to give my appearance, Aaron Morris, appearing for Joe Dokes and Donald Trump. That was kind of fun. The case resolved itself almost immediately, but for one appearance, I represented Donald Trump in court. I should really add that to my website. When you have a major presence on the internet, you never know what will come your way. Maybe in a future episode, I'll I'll tell you about my case involving two Playboy Playmates. See you next week.